Please be seated. Well, in a liturgical church like ours, today is an important day. White is your giveaway. Uh, white signifies something important is happening, and what is important is the Feast of Transfiguration. So, following along on a church calendar, this Sunday will be immediately followed by uh, Ash Wednesday, this Wednesday, and that begins a period of Lent, 40 days before the Passion of Christ. So, the Feast of Transfiguration is the high point of Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, where his, as the name suggests, his figure was transformed and he, uh, he was seen as a moment, as he truly is, glowing white, surrounded by uh, Moses and Elijah, etc. And as a preacher, I've always thought, you know, I get it, I appreciate, I, I believe it happens, certainly. I know it's important, you know, it's a, we don't make feast days for nothing. Uh, it's an event recorded in all gospels, so I know it's important, but I've always kind of wondered, why? Like, I know it happened, but why is it important for you and me? Why, why is the Feast of Transfiguration something that you and I should continue to mark? And therefore, I'm very grateful for Second Peter, which is our epistle lesson, because the, that lesson explains for us why you and I should continue to pay attention to the Feast of Transfiguration. So, with that, we'll turn to Second uh, Peter. Sermon notes are in your, on page 11 of your service leaflet. Our last Sunday in the sermon series, Shine, I'm going to address three questions from 2 Peter. First question, it's really the, the dominant question of the letter of 2 Peter, that, that is, where is Jesus now? Second question is, what did they see? Third question is, what will we see? Now, I know those may seem a little bit disjointed, but I think as we move forward, you'll see they all tie together. So, the first question that I want to address is, where is he now? It may be helpful to have your Bibles open, certainly have the passage and the sermon notes so you can flip back and forth between the two of them. Look at verse 13. The Apostle Peter, the author of this letter, begins this letter by saying, it is right for me to stir you up. And when he says stirring, he's not talking to a pot. He's talking to stirring the, his, the church up, church, stirring you and me up to, be, uh, to live godly, righteous, and sober life. So if you back up a few verses in chapter 1, verse 5, we read this statement. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness. In other words, it's right for me to stir you up to pursue godliness and Christ-likeness in your life. Why is it right for him to stir the church up, to stir you and me up to pursue godliness? Well, good question. He answers that in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. All right? So follow the logic. It's, not, it's right for me to stir you up towards love and good deeds because I did not make up the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power. He says it's not a myth. A better, line, a better translation would be a fable. If you go to the King James Version, it would have that word, fable. The coming of the Lord Jesus in power is not a fable. And fable is better than myth because myths, can, you can tell myths that don't have a point. But a fable does. A fable is sort of a religious story with a moral punch. Here's an example of a fable. I was checking out from Aldi and uh, there was a poor mom, or she was a, a mom with two kids, uh, not economically poor but in a, in a harried state because her kids, two kids were just going bonkers. It was raining outside, and uh, all of a sudden there was a huge clap of thunder. And the mom looked at her kids and said, see, 
You made God mad, which is brilliant parenting and the perfect example of a religious fable. Was God mad? Who knows? Was his anger connected to a thunder? Likely not, but it was a moral, it was a religious story with a moral point. Behave, kids. Peter is saying, I didn't come to you with a, a cleverly invented fable. The coming of Jesus is not something that I made up because, again, the question that dominates 2 Peter is where is Jesus, right? In our creeds, we say Jesus ascended into heaven where he will one day come and be our judge. In our communion service, we'll say Christ died, Christ rose, Christ will come again. And some then, in the congregation that Peter was addressing, and some now will say, wait, you tell me Jesus is coming, you tell me he's king, isn't that just sort of a religious fable to, you know, the opium of the people? Aren't you just trying to keep us under your thumb to keep us minding our P's and Q's? In other words, isn't Jesus a little bit like a, a moral fable of Santa Claus? He's making his list, he's checking his twice, he's going to find out who's naughty or nice and you better watch out because he's coming to town. Peter says, nope, not the case, not a fable. Now let's follow the argument because he's going to tell us why we can trust that the coming and power of is not a fable to point number two. Again, in your sermons leaflets, we're moving to what they saw. We do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ when we were, here's a phrase, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, when were they eyewitnesses of his majesty? Huh. Interestingly enough, Peter goes on to describe the event which they witnessed their majesty and, would you believe, it is the events that we celebrate today, the Feast of the Transfiguration, where we witnessed Jesus on, you see verse 18, we saw him on the holy mountain. What mountain was that? The Mount of Transfiguration. So what did Peter, James, and John see on the mountain? They saw Jesus Christ in glory. They saw his, a better translation of verse 17 would include the word mega majesty. Kind of glad they didn't actually make that translation, but that's what it communicates in great. They, don't, they just didn't see a little taste of it. They saw his mega glory. And if you look at the gospel writings, that is exactly what is conveyed. They saw not just a little bit of his glory, they saw a whole bunch of it. Let's look very briefly at the passage of the, that describes the transfiguration, Mark chapter 9. Jesus took Peter, James, and John that led them to the holy mountain by themselves and was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as though no one on earth could bleach them. I mean, the, the, the gospel writer gives us three descriptors of how white his clothes were. White, intensely white, whiter than anyone could bleach them. The, the gospel writers tell us that he was uh, surrounded in the company of Elijah and Moses, two of the big hitters from the Old Testament. The, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus was consumed or surrounded by a cloud, and a cloud is a big deal in the Old Testament. God led his people with the cloud. Uh, when the tabernacle or religious places are dedicated, Always a cloud descends, so a cloud represents God. And here the cloud descends again, and from that cloud a voice speaks. This is my one, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, what did they see? They saw the majesty of Jesus. Got it? Good. Because we're going to follow his argument. The apostle Peter says, it's right for me to stir you up. 
to love and good deeds, to faith, to steadfastness, to perseverance. Why? Because the coming of Jesus Christ is not a myth. Why is it not a myth? Because I saw it. In other words, what the apostle is saying, what he, James, and John witnessed very briefly, that being the majesty of Jesus, shining white in the company of saints, affirmed by the Father. What they saw, what the few saw briefly, all will one day see eternally. The fancy word for this is a proleptic vision. It is a vision in anticipation of what is to come. Are you following the, the, the argument of the author? He's going to come back. He's going to come back in majesty. And you can bank on it because I saw his majesty. I saw a teaser, a trailer of what one day all people will see. We will see him as he is. One of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, reflects on this when he writes in a sermon, we will see Jesus as he is. And he reflects on the very the many images of Jesus that are conveyed in the New Testament. This is worth Googling and looking up yourself because it is such a, a stirring thought. Charles Spurgeon writes, we will never see Jesus as he is portrayed in the many images in the gospel. We will never see the physician, the healer of souls. We will never see the man of sorrows. We will never see the gloom of Gethsemane. We will never see the infant a span long. And here I pick up his quote. Uh, the glories of Bethlehem are gone. Cavalry gloom is swept away. We will never see him as he was. We have a larger promise. We will see him as he is. We shall see the head, but not with a thorny crown. We shall see him, not with a peasant's garb around him, but with the empires of the universe upon his shoulders. We shall see him, not as mocked and spit upon and insulted, not bone of our bone, but we shall see him exalted. No longer Christ, the man of sorrows, but Christ, the man-made God. We will see him radiant with splendor, effulgent with light, clothed with rainbows, girded with the clouds, wrapped in lightning, crowned with the stars, the sun beneath him, his feet. We shall not see Jesus ever abased in his incarnation. We will only see him in glory. In other words, we will see what they saw. So here is a summary of the argument that Second Peter makes. The transfiguration is important. Why is it important? Because it is both a snapshot and a guarantee of the coming of Christ in majesty and in power. And the coming of Christ in power and majesty is one of the foundations for Christian morality. Remember where we started? It's right for me to stir you up because the coming of Christ is not a fable. There are other reasons to, for Christian morality, but boy, that's a big one, that one day Jesus will come again and be our judge. It's a great passage. I want to make three implications as we come to a close. Implication number one, I want us to appreciate the connection between 
Spiritual enlightenment and moral reform. Spiritual enlightenment, that's actually not a great word. I wish I could have revised my notes. I should say worship is the key to moral reform. In other words, do you want to be a better husband, better wife, better father, better mother? Do you want to be a better citizen? Do you want to be a better employee, a better employer? The key to being to moral reform is worship, to see Jesus as he truly is. If we had just one little snapshot of what they saw, uh, robed in light, burning like the sun, our only thought, our, all of our pettiness, smallness, envy, all that would be gone. And our only thought would be how to honor him. Moral reform is connected to spirit, to worship. That's why he writes, it's not, it is right for me to stir you up. Number two, uh, I want us to appreciate that while we can't go to that Mount of Transfiguration and we won't see what they saw until Jesus comes again, we still can have a taste. Look, with, look, at, verse, look at verse 19. We have the prophetic word, and that prophetic word is simply referring to the scriptures. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, what he's saying is, no, you can't go to the Mount of Transfiguration, but you do have the sure prophetic word. And in the sure prophetic word, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find Jesus as he is, revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And as you find Jesus as he is, you will encounter just at least a touch I'd love his understatement. It'd be well to pay attention to these things. Yeah, it really would be well for you to pay attention to the sure prophetic word. You and I can see at least in part what they saw. Number three. I say this with a little bit of cheekiness, but heaven is an acquired taste. One of the knocks against Christianity is that, you know, it's so exclusive. God doesn't let everybody into heaven. How mean. Um, I think it would be more accurate to say that, look, not everyone's going to want to be there. One of the things we're told about eternity is that we will be with him. There's other things we're told about eternity, but that's a pretty big one. The him is Jesus. Now, which him are you going to be with? Are you going to be with him, the babe? Him, the healer? Him, uh, the, you, there's one Jesus that you will encounter throughout all eternity, and that is the Jesus that was on the Mount of Transfiguration, clothed in light, uh, the, the rainbows, uh, that Jesus, not the babe. In other words, an unholy person would simply not find heaven a very comfortable place to be. I'm reminded of the colic we pray every Advent. Will God give us grace in the time of this mortal life to cast off the works of darkness, so that when your son Jesus Christ comes again in great glory and honor, we shall rise to meet him without shame. So three implications. And here we come to a conclusion. I'll begin, I'll conclude where we began. The apostle Peter writes, it's right that I stir you up to faith and virtue, to knowledge, to self-control, to steadfastness, to godliness. Why is it right to be stirred up to pursue these things? Because the coming of Christ in power is not a myth. It's not a religious fable. His power and his majesty were displayed 
very briefly to a few on the Mount of Transfiguration. What they saw briefly, all will see eternally. Please rise.